Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. Happy Sunday morning to those of you joining us live. Delighted to have David Rico joining us as our special guest today. Now, before we get to his introduction, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining us from all over the world for these live streaming events, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Vancouver, BC, is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Most of Banyan's events and podcasts are free. We welcome your donations to help keep these programs accessible for all. Just click on the PayPal link in the show description below. Our guest today, David Rico, or Dave, PhD, is a psychotherapist, teacher, writer, and workshop leader whose work emphasizes the benefits of mindfulness and loving kindness in personal growth and emotional well-being. He combines Jungian, poetic, and mythic perspectives in his work with the intention of integrating the psychological and the spiritual. His books and workshops include attention to Buddhist and Christian spiritual practices. Rico is the author of over 20 books, including the best-selling How to Be an Adult in Relationships, The Five Things We Cannot Change, and Triggers. Of course, all of his books are available at Banyan Books at banyan.com. About one year ago, we had him here speaking with us about his book, Ready, How to Know When to Go and When to Stay. And now we're excited to have David Rico back with Banyan Books in conversation about his newer book, To Thine Own Self Be True, Shakespeare as Therapist and Spiritual Guide. This book presents 25 psychological and spiritual topics with quotations from Shakespeare's plays about each of them. Every quotation is followed by a rephrase in modern English. Each chapter has an introduction, a conclusion, and practices showing how Shakespeare gives us access to our own wisdom about what it takes to be a healthy, wholesome, and spiritually aware human being. Some of the topics include love, grief, fear, our shadow side, joy, our true self, destiny, gratitude, synchronicity, fate, and chance, among more. This book has a mirthful feel and is meant for anyone interested in Shakespeare's take on healthy living. It is not for scholars only. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest, you can visit his website at daverico.com. That's Rico, R-I-C-H-O, daverico.com. Banyan Books community, join me in a warm welcome for our guest today, Dave Rico. Hello there, Dave. Hi, Ross. Thank you for inviting me. It's so good to have you here. So I guess the first question is, why Shakespeare? And regarding the topic of becoming fully human and who can help us with that task, you, you write in the book's introduction. I kept looking for someone who might approach the topic of integrating psychology and spirituality from imagination and wisdom, rather than only from the science of psychology 
or spiritual literature. That led me to Shakespeare. So I guess the question is, you know, most of us know that he had a lot to say about the human condition. I'm not sure many of us really get the true depth of his wisdom. So can you fill us in a little bit more on why you chose Shakespeare for this book? My introduction to Shakespeare was in um, my freshman, that is first year of high school, at which time we read um, The Merchant of Venice. And I noticed even then <clears throat> that we were in the hands of someone who seemed to know more than anybody else I had encountered about what it means to be human. And uh, at the same time, I noticed that um, some of the statements, some of the speeches, some of the dialogue in the play uh, seem to have a relevance in my own life or also seem to um, help me in a spiritual way. For instance, in that play, there's a beautiful speech that most people are aware of about the importance of mercy. And uh, that was my first sense that there was something about Shakespeare that was special. And as a matter of fact, um, the very first um, words I ever memorized were from that play. There's a scene in which Portia is um, looking down a hallway where she sees one candle burning. <clears throat> and she says to her maid, how far that little candle throws its beams, so shines a good deed in a naughty world. That was the very first um, statement from Shakespeare that struck me and I memorized it and I still know it now all these years later and it's still meaningful to me. And I noticed in the, in the statement that um, it's, it's telling about the importance of a good deed and how it may just look uh, like something that stands alone and yet it reaches into the whole world. And, it's a, and I certainly have noticed that it's a naughty world indeed. <laughs> um, and um, Shakespeare is himself in his works that kind of a light for me that throws its beams all through my lifetime. And I certainly get it and I'll never understand him fully. I imagine nobody ever has. But um, in adult life, I continued to study Shakespeare and I uh, joined a class uh, uh, online and in person, and I'm still in this class 40 years later. And we read Shakespeare plays and discuss them. And as this class has been going on, I've been gathering quotations that jumped out at me, all of which have the same theme which is how to be a better human. And I really think he's uh, um, an authoritative voice on this. But secondly, I noticed that the reason these quotations were jumping out at me is because they felt familiar. They felt like a remembering rather than a learning, as if we always knew these um, aspects of wisdom and that um, there's a whole wisdom library in every one of us. So I'm continually noticing in the book and showing how 
you can find all these wonderful truths within yourself when you learn to look in an imaginative way. So that's the origin of the book. And uh, it's the only book which I began right in effect, began writing at age 14. <laughs> and um, uh, I know I'll be finding even more uh, quotations as the years go on, but um, the ones I have in the book, which are probably a couple of hundred, um, I arranged all the quotations to fit into 25 topics. And so there are 25 chapters in the book and I present the topic <clears throat> you gave some examples of the topics. And then I show the quotations from Shakespeare that fit each one. And uh, I was very much helped by reading Harold Bloom, who was an expert on Shakespeare. He uh, was a professor at Yale. And he says that it was Shakespeare more than anyone else who taught us how to be human or what it means to be human. So um, that set me on the path to write this particular book. And, and Dave, you've, I think a lot of people are intimidated by Shakespeare's language, as you point to early on in the book, uh, that it's difficult to connect with this wisdom because of his antiquated English and poetics. But you found a wonderful way to give a summary in modern plain English to help us to understand and absorb the meaning of his quotes. Yes, for every uh, for every quotation, I, um, I I follow each quotation with a restatement of it in modern English. I found that very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really allowed me to have much more of an appreciation for like to bounce back and forth and say, OK, sometimes I would even read your your interpretation first and then say, OK, I'm going to keep that in mind now as I read the Shakespeare quote. And I was much more able to absorb it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the quotes that I'm using, there are only three or four lines. These are not long speeches. So they're, they're short, pithy quotations. And then you expand in the introduction and conclusion of each chapter with a lot of wonderful material that I found very helpful. Uh, one of the things that you, you talk about is these three elements that help us help to reveal to us the depths of words. You talk about experiential, multi-leveled, and similar. Can you talk about those three elements and the, the relationship to our readiness to, to absorb the depth of, of words? Yes, I tried to show that um, you can appreciate a writer uh, in a more in-depth way if you look not only at uh, the words on the page, but see into them and um, see them as a metaphor or a helpful escort into some part of yourself. And then it also helps to make a connection between what this particular writer says and something similar in another writer whom you also appreciate. That reminds you of the universality of human wisdom. And I show in the I show examples of this in the book. So the the book is also split up into three sections, and if we can we can start with part one. In fact, the first chapter and part one is titled "Who Are We?" And chapter one, love, the heart energy of humanness. You talk about these loves. Uh, three tender C's. You tell us that love can be described 
with three tender C's, a caring, committed connection. And then you go on to say that nature wants us to co-create with her a world of caring, committed connection. This is what love is and can be. Can you tell us a bit more about these three C's and how, how they manifest, how we can align ourselves with them in love? Uh, they seem to, um, it took me a while to come up with that phrase. Uh, I asked myself, well, in your own experience of being loved, what are the qualities that came through and, and seem to be the ingredients of love as well as a kind of um, way of testing yourself to know whether you really do love someone. So that's how I came up with, well, it has to include caring. It has to include um, a kind of dedication so that you remain with it. So that's the commitment. And part of the commitment is also that you're going to work out issues that come up between you and the person that you love, that you're committed to working things out rather than just up and leave if it doesn't feel good. And then finally, um, that it involves a connection that we all need and that um, reflects a big part of what it means to be human. It's not just that we're social animals and therefore do require a kind of um, ongoing social connection. It's also that you would never really know yourself if you hadn't met up with people who knew you better than you knew yourself or questioned you about what you were up to or helped you see talents and gifts in yourself that you might not have noticed or thought you were even worthy of having. And that um, the people that we've met along the way who represent that have also helped us know what love is really about. So, um, you can think of somebody that you love and ask yourself, do I care what matters to this person in a very deep and enduring way? Am I committed to working things out with this person no matter what conflicts may come up between us? And do I feel a link to this person that shows me uh, I'm, I'm not fully myself without this person in my life. These, are, these to me are in-depth ways of looking at what love is about rather than a connection that feels good. This, these, um, these words add uh, dimensionality to the experience so that um, so that the bond that you're describing is more than just um, what feels good it's um, what is good what even creates goodness and Shakespeare is uh, an expert on all that I've just been saying. You, you give a, a few, a, a selection of quotes from Shakespeare on high romance and its effect on us. And the one that stood out to me, and it, it touches on what you're speaking about here. But I mean, in this culture that we're living in, there's so much focus on physical beauty. And it's easy for people to mistake that. Uh, that attraction for love. Um, you, you give a quote from The Taming of the Shrew uh, on page four, where um, it's he says, kindness in women, not their beauteous looks, 
shall win my love. Yes. And then uh, this, well, that's I, so meaningful, isn't it? So what he's saying is what, um, what are, what, um, arouses love in me, what I find attractive in someone is not what you see on the outside, the physical beauty, but what you see as a wonderful internal gift, for instance, kindness, that is then expressed in how this person acts. See, that's a mature way of um, of experiencing attraction. Uh, I remember a little scene in the Disney film about um, Beauty and the Be it's called Beauty and the Beast. And I've always remembered this scene and it speaks to what we're talking about. Um, of course, she falls in love with him looking like a beast. In other words, not very appealing, uh, not a handsome young fellow, but uh, a person who's uh, misshapen and uh, ugly to look at. But as she gets to know him internally, she falls in love with that. She falls in love with who he really is, and she no longer pays attention to what he looks like. And in this scene, um, he's, he's now going to turn into a handsome prince. As she turns away a minute and he changes, he's no longer looking like a beast, now he looks like Prince Charming. She turns back and when she sees him, uh, instead of saying, oh, isn't this great? She, she, she's looking behind him saying, uh, where where is he? Where's the real one? I thought, what a beautiful little um, de detail to show her full commitment to the person that she has known. And she's not fooled at all, nor is she even attracted to this new version. Of course, when she re realizes the new version is really is really he, then she will love him. But uh, does this make sense to you, Ross? Absolutely. No, yeah, it's such yeah. a beautiful illustration. Yeah. Now that's an example of what we talked about before, that here's um, the quote from Taming of the Shrew, kindness in women, not their beauteous looks, shall win my love. But that's the same as what's in the film, it's um, the kindness of the beast and not the fact that he has ugly looks or beautiful looks wins my love. So it's that story is making the same statement that Shakespeare is making. When you see that, when you see something repeated throughout um, history, in various literary forms, you realize then that's one of the truths that humans were born with. And that's one of the points I'm making in the book, that every one of these quotes is already known by your inner self. And that's what he's talking to. That's why these plays have endured. They are not coming from ego to ego. They are coming from higher self to higher self. They're awakening something that's already in you and was just waiting to be activated. The, there's another section in this chapter on love where you speak about equality in love. And uh, on page 11, there's a quote from um, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, where I'm just going to find it here. Uh, Let me be that I am. 
So yeah, from much ado about nothing, let me be that I am and seek not to alter me. Yeah, accept me as I am and don't be trying to change me. This is what every one of us has said in our relationships, not only to partners, but also to our parents. Uh, just uh, love me as I am, rather than trying to change me into what you need me to be, expect me to be, hope I will be. And it's just stated so simply and clearly there, uh, one until two syllable words, anybody can understand it. Let me be what I am and seek not to alter me. Give up trying to change me. Just let it be okay that I am who I am. Even Popeye said that, I am who I am. So you're, um, you're hearing uh, words that you yourself would want to say to someone. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You, this is, I think this is a concept. I mean, most of us understand it, at least intellectually. You know, we should just let the other be as they are. We want that. Um, it's hard to pull off at times. I'm wondering, how do we approach this aspiration to love our partner or friend or a family member as they are, but while still being able to ask for them to change in healthy ways? Is that ever okay? Always. Yeah, you're um, accepting me as I am, and you're asking for a change. But if it's not forthcoming, you still love me. I think that would be a good way to put it. Okay. And Shakespeare talks about love as sacred and universal. On, on page 12, you quote, all's well that ends well. Um, Love is holy. That's plain and simple. Love is holy. And then you go on to write that the root of the word holy is related to wholesomeness and wholeness. And that in true love, we notice qualities of wholeness, wholesomeness, and holiness. Can you tell us more about how we can tap into these qualities in our love relationships? I think it happens through the acceptance. Because once you accept once it's okay with you that someone is who he is or who she is or who they are, you just automatically um, give up control. You give up trying to redesign someone. And uh, that's the equivalent of honoring something in the other person, <clears throat> which um, is totally okay and um, something that can be revered, uh, something that can be held as sacred. So I'm letting the, the, the you that you are be, um, be so sacred that I'm not trying to make it different. It would be something like what would happen in a religious um, setting. You're looking at a statue of the Virgin Mary, and you're not thinking to yourself, she should have blonde hair instead of brown hair. <laughs> you're just letting it be okay that she looks the way she does, and you're um, showing reverence to the divine feminine. Uh, which she represents. So that would be the same in our relationships. I'm, I'm honoring um, who you are in the divine, at the divine level of your being, um, rather than um, paying attention to something superficial. Part two of the book, I'm, I'm jumping ahead now because we're just trying to get an overview. Uh, part two of the, of the book is what happens to us. And I just want to take a moment to remind our live audience, 
that we're going to take some of your questions towards the last 15 minutes of our hour here. So go ahead and type your questions for Dave into the comments field on YouTube. So part two is what happens to us. And chapter nine, when things change, you talk about change as evolutionary. You write, we have no control over how things change. It is optimistic and useful to view change as evolutionary. Can you explain to us how to shift our view and see challenging changes as actually evolutionary opportunities? Well, first of all, it fits um, with the um, Buddhist teaching about impermanence that one of the givens, of, the first given of life is everything changes, everything comes to an end in the way we have originally seen it. But at the same time, things are also cycling. So they come back in a new way. So for instance, in a relationship, you begin with a heady romance. But if you think that, uh, well, I only want to be in this relationship as long as it's all uh, sexy, romantic uh, stuff and and my partner is young and beautiful, uh, that would not be an actual caring, committed connection. Um, and it's obvious that uh, everybody's gonna, going to get older and everybody is going to show new parts of, of their personality that some of which you may not like. And so you're going to have to place that on the table and look at it and work on it. Uh, I talk about this in the uh, how to be adults in relationships. But um, to say yes to the, to the changing nature, to the movable feast that this life is, sits us on the horse in the direction it's going, rather than sitting backwards in the saddle, looking at what we had before and trying to make it stay. So um, we know we've become mature when it's okay with us that things are changing because it's changing in the way a kaleidoscope image changes. It's uh, presenting a, a, an ever continually beautiful display. If we um, could apply that to how things change, how people change, if we could say, oh, this is, it's the same, it's the same person like the same number of chips in the, in the uh, kaleidoscope, but now the person looks a little different. How can I see beauty in this new, uh, in this alteration, in this new version? And also, how can I notice the changes happening in myself and let, and let it be okay to, for me that I'm changing the way I'm changing? I can't do now in later life what I used to do in, in my younger life, but yet I have more wisdom in the way I walk around in the world. So can I appreciate that and let go of uh, what was so enjoyable before? When you look at things this way, and Shakespeare helps us do this because this is one of his main themes. In fact, the word used most in Shakespeare is time and time is the record of change. So um, the unconditional yes to the ever-changing nature of our lives and relationships is what makes us mature people, rather than trying to cling to what is going or has gone. Wow. Yeah. That, that really brings a lot of perspective on. Yeah. I, I never thought of it as a sign of maturity. 
Yeah. There's a quote from Macbeth on page 60. I'm wondering if you would read that one to us. Um, the one that starts with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah, so that's the famous speech that we all had to memorize in high school. Hmm. And um, in this speech, uh, Macbeth is showing how everything is transitory. In fact, this is the part of the play in which he has just found out that his wife has died and she was so important to him. And um, it also shows that our life is full of worries that do end as we do. And uh, unfortunately, through all the evil things that he has done, he has lost his sense of hope in humanity. So the speech ends with how, um, how there's a lot of hoopla, but there's no ultimate meaning in life. And Shakespeare is showing that when you give yourself over to what in Buddhism are called the three poisons, greed, hate, and ignorance, that you wind up having no hope. So it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. So already he's not appreciating the beautiful cycles of, and seasons of life. He's calling it uh, petty. It just creeps along meaningless to the last syllable of recorded time. It's gonna, it's gonna go on forever this meaningless movement. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. So, so thinking of your life as just a brief candle, just a, 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 a short visit to the planet. And in it, life is just a walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This is where you wind up when you have oriented yourself toward greed, hate, and ignorance. So it's uh, deeply tragic. And by the way, um, we read this play also in high school in the senior year. And of course, I never um, was able to appreciate at age 18 uh, what the play was really about. Um, but as the years went on and I saw the play maybe every 10 years during my lifetime and just read it, um, I read it uh, while... I, I read it while I was writing the book because we were studying it in our Shakespeare class. And I realized that each time I was seeing it, I was um, closer to understanding what it was all about, which you can't do when you're 18 because you haven't had enough life experience, but you can do as you yourself have gone through so many things. And uh, the wonderful thing that happened to me is uh, for the first time uh, th that at a certain point uh, watching the play again, for the first time I felt compassion for Macbeth rather than blame. That showed me I had made an advance in my spiritual life. And that um, somehow the way you read or see the play on stage or see it in a film will reflect where you are on your own journey. Do you simply hate and blame Macbeth for all the terrible things that he did? Or do you start to have some compassion for how any human 
can become so caught up in ambition that he will do harm rather than good in order to achieve it. And the play is written in such a way that it makes room for that. That's what's so enduring and wonderful about these plays. They're like the ancient Greek plays, like Oedipus, for instance. Uh, you, you read and see them over and over again, and each time you go deeper into what they're really about, because you yourself have deepened within your own life experience. That, that brings us to uh, part three of the book where you give spiritual practices. And I never would have thought that Shakespeare was giving us spiritual practices, but you really show how he's doing that. And you mentioned this, this passage from The Merchant of Venice. I think you said it was in high school that your first experience with Shakespeare. Um, on page 104, where he's speaking about compassion or mercy, can you share that with us and we can talk about it a bit, Dave? Uh, that's that you're referring to the famous speech, the quality of mercy is not strained. Yes. Yeah. And of course, uh, what Portia is saying is that um, she's making a, a play for what's called restorative justice instead of punitive justice. And of course, many courts now are, are aware of this distinction and are designing, um, designing the, um, the plan for uh, how a criminal will pay for his, her, or their crime, uh, maybe by making a contribution to the community, finding a way to have the person uh, make up for what they've done, but at the same time, um, uh, remain connected. And uh, that's what this, that's what the idea of bringing mercy into the equation is all about. And the way that would show itself uh, in our own personal life would be um, that we uh, have compassion where, you, where we, we have compassion and asking for accountability where before we only had blame and fault finding. So that's how it shows itself uh, in your daily interactions. You start to notice, uh, oh, I'm no longer just uh, hating people for what they've done. I'm hating the the, the crime, but uh, somewhere in me, there's um, some compassion for how isolated and, and sick someone must have been to uh, engage in these uh, criminal acts. Or even uh, when someone turns against us, we... Uh, we don't just retaliate by turning against them or trying to hurt them. We uh, are sorry about, uh, it, we, we let ourselves feel the grief, which is the missing piece when you simply go to retaliation. Shakespeare says this over and over again. He continually shows that revenge is not the path of a healthy human, that the path is always to uh, work things out so that finally you get to the point of understanding with compassion and even forgiveness. And I, I show that definitely in the book. You do. Yeah. Chapter 21 is from revenge to reconciliation. And then the next chapter 22 is all about making amends. And I really, I really loved all of those chapters. Um, we have some nice questions from our live audience, Dave. There's one here from uh, their handle is living Shakespeare, obviously a Shakespeare fan uh, who says, how do you stay true to your quote unquote true self? 
does William Shakespeare support this trueness? Or sorry, how does William Shakespeare support this trueness? He is always showing us one of two things, either actual characters that we admire and who act with integrity or someone who, whom we don't admire, but as the play proceeds, we see a change and we get to uh, appreciate him or her a lot more. So we might not like what King Lear is like or, or look down at him for his, what we might think of as a foolish decision to divide the kingdom three ways. Um, but then by the end of the play, we have compassion for his humanness and his recognition of his era and how he um, laments what the choices that he's made, but um, is certainly not trying to be vengeful at the same time. So what I'm noticing um, is uh, how Shakespeare has found ways to show us um, the kind of, of uh, qualities that are in human nature that can come out when we go through things, not as um, complainers, or as uh, those who wish everything had been different, but we take all the events of our lives as opportunities to, um, to show more love and less fear. And he, he helps us do that. That would be a wonderful uh, plan, wouldn't it? I want everything that happens to me to be, to give me an opportunity um, for more love and less fear. I think I have something in here that I can share. Yes, please. Uh, that's kind of along these lines. Oh yeah, I'm on page 144. And this is what I use as uh, the way I start my day. It's kind of an affirmation, but it it's, fits um, with this question. I say yes to everything that happens to me today as an opportunity to give or receive love and to free myself from fear. I am thankful for the enduring capacity to love that has come to me from the sacred heart of the universe. May everything that happens to me today open my heart more and more. May all that I think, say, feel, do, and am express loving kindness toward myself, those close to me, and all beings. That's what I mean by the true self. The true self is the one who says something like that. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to Living Shakespeare for that, that question. There's another one here from someone called Pip Bondi, who says, thank you, Dave. Can you share a quote that speaks deeply about grief? Uh, sure. And hi, Pippa. Um, in Macbeth, we have, the, we have this quote, give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the orfraught heart and bids it break. So repeating that in modern English, um, show your grief directly, even put it into words, because when you hide it, when you try to repress it, not let it out, it, um, adds to your stress and it, it uh, pushes itself against your heart, your ability to love 
and even breaks your heart by giving you more sadness than you uh, originally had. Or another way of saying it is, when I express my grief, when I express my sadness about any loss or disappointment or ending, and I'm of course always doing this with the, un with the realization that endings happen, but grief is still our nature-given technology to work through our losses. When I do this, um, I, uh, I can finally let go, which is the ultimate um, challenge that we're all facing. I so like give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers the orfrot heart and bids it break. Orfrot means overly stressed. You said grief is our nature-given technology for working through our losses. I really like that phrasing and framing of it. Thanks. Shakespeare has a lot about grief, so I have many quotes in there about that part of the right. That part of the human story. <laughs> there's a there's a question here from someone who's just calling themselves F, who says, "I feel Shakespeare language and words go beyond the finite nature of humans. It feels like the words are more suited to divine personalities and not flawed humans. Do you feel the same?" Well, um, since we're all flawed humans, uh, I would say it's a combination. It's a divine voice and, and flawed human voice. Uh, but I do, I, I understand what the person is asking. And uh, we wanna be sure that we don't um, engage in a split we want to remember what um, William Blake said, everything that lives is holy. So even in our worst moments, uh, there's that divine spark in us. We need no Shakespeare to tell us that. We, we already know that in our, uh, as a result of our spiritual practices. What are these spiritual practices? <clears throat> to be able to see what happens mindfully rather than with judgment, and then to show loving kindness in all our behaviors. I think we have time for one more audience question. There's one here from Sienna who says, does Shakespeare have a defined view of life and reality, or are the wisdom quotes more expressions of the idiosyncrasies of the individual characters? Uh, what was the first half of the question? Does Shakespeare have a defined view of life and reality, or are the wisdom quotes more expressions of the idiosyncrasies of individual characters? Well, he was uh, continually evolving his sense of what human life is about. So, uh, and by the last uh, important play, which is The Tempest, uh, that's the only play uh, in which he is the actual storyteller. All the other plays are based on stories or myths that, that he was aware of and he recasts them in a new way, such as, say, Romeo and Juliet, Star-Crossed Lovers. There already were stories about that. But in The Tempest, he's making up his own story. And that particular character, uh, the main character, Prospero, um, you can see that he's, that he has a very clear view of what it means to be a human. And uh, 
that he's trying to live in accord with standards of love and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the main quality or, or the main theme of the play. So that so we can say that by the last play, he does have a clear framework of what it means to be uh, a human of wholeness. But throughout the plays, we see the other side that the this person, uh, this the questioner refers to. Uh, so I would say that, you know, we're lucky enough in the whole corpus of, of the plays to uh, see a, a wonderful progression and see both of the elements uh, coming together. I just want to remind our audience, we've been speaking with David Rico about his new book, To Thine Own Self Be True, Shakespeare as Therapist and Spiritual Guide. Thanks to everyone in the live audience for your wonderful questions and for joining us and being a part of these live events. Um, one more question for you, Dave. You write in the epilogue that the primary way to discover the depth and meaning in Shakespeare is by watching and enjoying his plays. This also becomes a most effective way to enter the human story in all its variety. It really came through to me in your writing that you are yourself in love with humanity and all the human experience and story. And I'm wondering just what, what your plans are uh, to continue from here in this, in this love affair that you have with, with becoming whole humans. Uh, what are you working on a new book? Do you have any upcoming workshops or anything like that that you want to tell people about? Um, well, first of all, I certainly intend to continue my study of Shakespeare. It's a lifetime work, and I uh, love engaging in it. And that's equal to my lifetime commitment to um, understand and practice the Dharma, Buddha's elegant and incomparable path to enlightened living. And the book that I'm working on is about the, the people in the course of life who have been our assisting forces the people who have helped us find out who we really are, what our gifts are that we ourselves might not have noticed or thought we were undeserving to have. It's a beautiful topic. Uh, it's symbolized by all the, um, the sidekicks, the guardian angels, the uh, various characters, both spiritual and, and mortal. Uh, who helped the hero along the path. And we are that hero. And we have, we have Yoda and we have uh, Glinda, the good witch, and we have um, all the characters that we've encountered in stories who are there to help. Um, they come through for us. And then we also uh, learn how to be assisting forces toward others. So that's my topic. And it's going to be published by Shambhala um, a year from this August. The title I have for it is Help on the Way. You know, help is on the way, but also help on the way, you know, the path of life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that'll be the final title. But anyway, maybe we can have another interview when that book comes out. That would be delightful. I think we would all appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks again so much for your time. It was really nice to, to chat with you today. Well, thank you. And I really like how you do the interview. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. 
The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.